You're listening to The Outspoken Bible, a podcast from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of The Outspoken Bible. I'm Fiona Stewart. I'm joined by Jen Robertson and Neil Glover. Hello. Hello. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Do you know what? And also to you, there's a whole discussion, isn't there, about when you stop saying that. And I guess if somebody's listening in June, then it's going to be irrelevant. (laughs) But yes, Happy New Year to you. This is now us entering our third year of podcasting together. Can you believe it? Wow. Incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, Now, I'm interested to know, on that note, what you've learned about yourself through the process. And I did give you a little bit of advance notice so you can... When I went to India, they used to say to me that the the way that Indians often have curries, proper curries, is like a tally. I don't know if you've ever had that in in a restaurant where you have your rice in one plate, you have one curry, you maybe have a meat curry, vegetable curry, a bit of... um, a chutney and so on. And I remember once uh, somebody said to me, um, "This is the Indian uh, view of diversity. It is, it is not the Western view where everything amalgamates into oneness." Now, leave aside for a moment if that's what the Western view is. Um, but to to him, he said that the curry has its strength because you have the rice and you have the the meat curry and the vegetable curry and the, and the chutney. And I have realised that with the three of us. Uh, that combination has been this great gift to people often say to me who listen to the podcast, we're very different and we are. And yet I love the spicy curry intermingling diversity <laughs> difference uh, that that we are. So it's the joy of the outspoken Bible being like an Indian curry. Wow. And we're all now trying to work out which, which. I know. <laughs> I think I'm the lime pickle. Jen, uh, what's your learning? What have you learned about yourself through the process? I've been thinking about this quite a bit, not just about the outspoken, but things I've learned uh, through the last three years because of lockdown. So, but that that's bigger than this. I when we when I was asked to do the the podcast, I really didn't want to do it. Um, I think I was scared. I was scared of having my opinions broadcast so openly. Um, and then I discovered that editing is an amazing thing. So don't need to worry too much about what you say, because if you say something that wasn't really very helpful, it can be removed. And so I've had a huge, it's been a huge confidence boost for me to speak and to express my opinion. And just to, and maybe people think, oh, well, Jen's just quite honest anyway. People say that to me and I, and I am. But I'm also, as a child and a young person, I spent most of that time of my life thinking that everything I said wasn't really worthwhile now I don't think that anymore but it's still definitely there and I I think that was part of my fear of not being part of this and 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 it's still there I mean every time I come on to record I think oh what am I going to say you know will it be worth anything you know will it be helpful but there's been a huge confidence I suppose and confidence always come it does come from God doesn't it that you know speak up and you know if you're listening and you think oh my my voice isn't important and I I can't be heard then I, I hope you find somewhere where you can be heard and you can be with good people like Neil and Fiona who help me be part of that conversation. The, if, I, if I could also have a second thing to go <laughs> oh, here on. Here we go. It's, um, Rice and man. Go and on. And. But it's the Bible, so you're going to feel bad for now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the comment we think we made at the end of the last time that um, though we sometimes argue with the Bible, being pushed by the Bible, we never, ever leave it. And um, it's that way that these incredible texts, sacred texts, inspired texts, have 
pulled us into so many different conversations has been remarkable. Well, you slightly undermined my thunder there because oh, I was actually going to say <laughs> it's like the podcast in miniature. This isn't it. Well, I was actually going to say it, it's about the Bible as well for me because I think particularly in the last year, um, as as the you know strictures have really kind of bitten, I, I've just found this a really helpful way of of doing Bible study, mm. um, where it's been hard to meet with other people to do that and and you know to to delve deeper than you would deep you would delve on a on a daily basis. So so I've really valued that, and and I think that it actually does bring it back to the um, to the analogy you made at the beginning there, Neil, because it's about the diversity of mm-hmm. of approach and and diversity of experience and and theological understanding. So I I really benefit from both of your um, theological knowledge and your experience, etc. And likewise. Yes. And and just, I mean, if you're listening to this and thinking you really want to experience that kind of curry as well, if you're ever at, ever at the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery in Glasgow, <laughs> just across the road is Mother India Cafe, which will give you that experience completely. So while you sit there and eat, you can have a conversation about how the podcast is like that. <laughs> is it called a tally in, by... in Mother India? I have no idea. I just enjoy the experience. Is it that kind of metal plate that has... Yes, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots yeah. of little metal plates. Yeah. yeah. That was great. What a good start to the year. Love that. Now, we're in a new season, a new series, whatever you want to call it. But uh, for 2022, we are inviting you to join us as we work our way through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter. So we've left behind Ezra and Nehemiah and those books. That was great last year. But I have to say, I'm really excited and looking forward to, to reading through John's Gospel. So if you're somebody who likes to follow along with the readings with us, it's very straightforward. We're just doing a chapter at a time, um, except for today. Because <laughs> today we're going to set the scene and we're going to talk about the first 18 verses of the book. And the following episode next time will take us to the end of chapter one. And from then on, we'll work through chapter by chapter. So as as ever we're keen to hear from you as you share the journey with us please do contact us to let us know how you're getting on you can share any insights recommended reading listening ask any questions whatever you like we have had a little bit of correspondence since the end of last series we had a lovely comment from christine rue uh, from aberdeen who's loved the series on ezra and nehemiah and so on and uh, is she's getting fresh insights as she's listening so we're glad that's been helpful, Christine. Thank and, you, Christine. Uh, yeah, and we've had email from a lady called Elizabeth. Now, now, this is quite a funny one because she is listening, but she started back at the start of the uh, the initial first series. So quite likely, if Elizabeth is, is hearing this, it will be 2024. So we hope you've stuck with us. Yeah. <laughs> and we hope you find that I helpful. hope it's good in 2024. Yeah, exactly. Hope it sounds fresh. <laughs> so again, yeah, get in touch if you want to. Let us know how you're getting on. And the email address for that is outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org. So do drop us a line. It is also worth mentioning that there is a gorgeous, I'm using the word gorgeous because I think it is gorgeous, new magazine format edition of John's Gospel called Light and Life, The Life of Jesus According to John. And you can order copies of that through scottish.bible. It's beautifully produced and it's a resource. It's kind of along similar lines to the Mark's Gospel that was produced last year. And I think that's a great way to get people in a group, maybe reading together. It's a lovely kind of... um, broadsheet type format uh, beautiful pictures and so on so check out scottish.bible if you're interested in um, ordering some of those i think that's all the intimations except to say that our favorite segments are back and it's time for the first of them it's time for glovers off glovers off for the first episode of this new season is on kevin kevin of glendalough Saint Kevin of Glendalough from County Wicklow in Ireland who lived in the 6th century. 
And the reason I'm talking about him is because Podrigo Toomey, who we've sometimes talked about on this podcast, who has a podcast called Poetry Unbound, had put out a tweet and an Instagram post, I think, a few weeks ago, asking for people for their favourite poems, which were about prayer. And I collated these just for my own personal use into a big document. I read one a day. And some of the ones which have spoken to me the most, uh, three of them, in fact, are about Blackbirds and Kevin of Glendalough. Uh, one of them, a famous one by Seamus Heaney and a couple by uh, David White. And the story of Kevin of Glendalough is of Kevin one day praying with his arms outstretched and he was so still that a blackbird came and landed in the palm of his hand and nested an egg or laid an egg because he was so still. And because Kevin of Glendalough wanted to protect the life of this blackbird, Kevin Glendalough then stayed so utterly still himself that he stayed in that position until the bird hatched several weeks later. And Seamus Heaney writes this beautiful poem about this, about what happened to Kevin in that experience. And for me, it's been a picture of doing that which is good and doing the right thing, even if you don't know the outcome. It's a picture of stillness and it's a picture of the changes that happen within us and around us that we do not control and yet for our, for our good. And I think in previous uh, podcasts, we've talked about the, the danger sometimes of certain views of spiritual growth, which, which are about heavily input. You know, if you do this and this and this, then you'll end up here. Whereas the most profound changes are the ones that simply seem to happen almost silently and mysteriously around us. And I think for me, that's been a picture of prayer. And it, it just is curious to me why I keep coming back to Kevin with his hands outstretched and the world connected to him and a beautiful thing happening around him and him staying still enough for that to happen. So that's Kevin of Glendalough and uh, I think uh, we'll put up some kind of reference to the poem by Seamus Heaney. There's also another wonderful poem which I absolutely love which picks up on Kevin by called uh, Coleman's Bed by David White and uh, are we going to do something with those? Well, we'll certainly put links into the show notes for all of that. I, there's a there's a lovely version you sent through to us mm. of Seamus Heaney reading the poem, didn't you? So I think we'll put a link to that. If depending on time, <laughs> we might put a reading of it into this directly. But if yeah. not, people can find it by accessing the show notes and doing it that way. There we are. That was Glover's off. That was an unranty. I felt I got too <laughs> ranty at the end of last year. So this is that was an unranty Glover's off. It's all that praying you've been doing, waiting for a bird to come in. Yes. an egg. <laughs> it's making you still. Thank you. That's great, Neil. Um, brilliant. So we here we are with John's Gospel, um, facing facing the challenge of reading through John's Gospel and speaking about it over the course of the year. How how are we feeling about uh, about that? Any thoughts? Oh, it was it was great to just read something that not that it's simple. John's Gospel is anything but simple. But maybe you can take it simple levels or, or deep levels. But compared to some of the struggles I had reading. Uh, the Nehemiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, whichever book it was that began with said, um, <laughs> I, I did have a lightness of of spirit um, coming to read the first few verses of John and being drawn into a really beautiful description of the amazing, incredible fact 
that Jesus, who was before everything and who was there at the start of everything, has now come and lives among us. And that that's not often these verses are read at Christmas, aren't they? But they're great news for all and any time of year, not just Christmas. And how how are we feeling about reading through chapter by chapter? Does that feel quite um, expository? It feels. I'm I'm looking forward to it because it feels like that we're going to spend time going to another country. I remember when I studied John's Gospel when I did my theology degree, and it was I actually looked out the essay that I wrote at the end of it just just now. So it was my uh, second year at university, and from the whole of September through to the end of a December term, we just studied John, and something happened over that period mm. where. We entered into a different way of thinking. I became so familiar with where the different themes appeared in different parts of John. And I love the fact that that kind of immersion brought me into a different way of thinking. Mm. Now, that was uh, 15 years ago, and I would love to have that mm. experience again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's very good. In terms of um, people finding things that they could read alongside this or resources that they can access is there anything that anybody wants to recommend it, i think the only th i was struggling to think about this through and i haven't i have i'm about to recommend something i actually haven't read myself but i'm presuming that tom wright has written a john for everyone well so, yes i've got that on my little yeah. i do have a list of things here oh go yes. go yeah well i've got i've got john for everyone tom wright and he, he's writing as Tom Wright, so he, yeah. it, you know, as people are familiar with with yeah. NT Wright, Tom Wright, when he when he writes as Tom Wright, it's it's more at a popular level. Um, I think there's two versions, so that, sorry, two two editions. So there's a one that covers chapter one to eleven, and the other one is um, eleven through to the end. Um, the Bible speaks today is mm. always kind of who, a, do you know who writes standard. that one? It's Bruce Milne. Okay. Right, it's the John's Gospel one. Um, and then a book, like a little him. book that I read a few years ago, and actually it picks up, Neil, on what you've just talked about, is a book called Encounters with Jesus mm -hmm. by Timothy Keller. Um, he he looks at some of the encounter well, the encounters, obviously, uh, but those those deep passages where you you know you learn a lot about a person, and he and he he really explores them. And I read the introduction again yesterday in advance of this, and he also talks about that thing of of immersing in the Book of John. Mm. And he talks about um, the, the, the process, the process of, of of looking within within a phrase to try and to try and sit with it for I think it's thirty minutes. He's sent away some course that he's only sent away for thirty minutes to dwell in one verse. And he thinks, what on earth will you find in one verse? And he, when they come back together, he says after ten minutes he feels a bit bored, but he sticks at it hmm. and he discovers things. And when they come back together to discuss. Um, what they what they discover is that the, the real truth of where God spoke to them has come at, at you know later on in that thirty minutes. It's at the mm -hmm. twenty minutes, twenty five minutes, and you need to really sit with something to to really hear from God through it. So yeah, yeah. that that picked up on that. So that's Timothy Keller, um, Encounters with Jesus: Unexpected Answers to Life's Big Questions. Wow. wow. Can I say, Fiona, I've actually got a spare part one of a uh, Tom Wright's John for everyone. So if I'm the first person who emails in, I'll happily post it out to them. Make a prize? Yeah. That's great. Get <laughs> on it. I don't know why I've got two, but I do. So I might let's, as well give it away. Say email address again. Uh, <laughs> outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org. Oh, nice. <laughs> Good. Um, what about a bit of background? So when we, we're talking about John's Gospel, so, and some of this actually we did cover when we did Bible 2020, I think. I remember us talking about John. Um, we're talking about the disciple, John. Well, there's a bit of discussion about this. So the 
there are three schools of thought, and one of them is yes, this is John, son of of Zebedee, who is the beloved disciple who who writes the book. Certainly, the 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 person, the author claims or writes as if they were part of the of the Jesus story. So that's the beloved disciple, and historically, um, that has always been identified in the life of the church with uh, John, the son of Zebedee, who was the disciple of Jesus. I think what is maybe slightly pushed people to maybe wonder about that is firstly the style of how Jesus speaks in John's gospel is completely different from any of the other gospels. There's a famous verse in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus suddenly starts speaking like John. It's John's Jesus, but the rest of the time um, it, it doesn't seem to happen. And people have, I guess what you might say is more critical scholars have argued that this is now the work of a community who has which has such a high view of the presence of Christ that they feel able to say that Jesus is speaking within us even though this is beyond the lifetime of the earthly Jesus and there's a verse in chapter 12 of John where it says that if anybody had believed that Jesus was the Christ they were put out of the synagogue and that verse has led many scholars to think that because that exclusion from the synagogue there's very little evidence for it to be in Jesus's time, but there is quite a lot of evidence that that happened quite a bit later. And so um, quite often what those scholars have said is that a community probably around Ephesus in Asia Minor uh, had reshaped the story of, of Jesus. There's also quite a lot of speculation about whether they had Mark's gospel to hand when they did this and they began to to reshape it. So is and then there's a third group, which I think is minority, but Richard Bauckham, who was at St. Andrews, I think has pushed this idea, is that there is another figure called John the Elder who also was responsible for this. Um, what people are all agreed on is it was written between AD 65, which is when Peter died, and that's referred to in the, the very last chapter of the Gospel, and the year 135, I think it is, there was a manuscript that's been found, one of the very earliest manuscripts, which contains John's Gospel, so somewhere between those two places. And most people are agreed that the person who wrote this is very closely related to the person who wrote 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and possibly the book of Revelation as well. But we are dealing with a different way of reflecting on the life of Jesus. But as we come to it, I would not want us to fall down the trap. Sometimes people say that John is the spiritual gospel. But if you look at John, it's actually very earthed and very human at times as well. So uh, it's holding together that paradox, which we'll come to when we look at the first part of uh, John, the, the prologue, verses 1 to 18. Brilliant. Well, let's hear that now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. 
he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Wow, well, what a way to start, isn't it? I mean, what a way to, and what a, what a contrasting way to start when you set John alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, what, what do we make of that? Why, why does he go cosmic? Why does he, why does he refer to Genesis? Because, well, we can talk about that, drawing on the, on the words of Genesis 1. But what, what's going on here? I mean, there is, a, there is an odd thing that is happening in the Gospels where the longer people think about Jesus, the further back they go. Um, now, I'm about to slightly contradict that, um, but a Mark's Gospel, which is probably written first, begins the life of Jesus at Jesus' baptism. Um, Matthew and Luke, um, well, Matthew traces the story of Jesus back to, well, one, his birth, but then the story of Abraham. And Luke also has the birth narrative and then goes back to the story of Adam in his family tree. John goes even, even further back. It's almost as if the longer people think about Jesus, the further back they go. But there's also another thing that happens in the New Testament. The, the moments in the New Testament where people think the most cosmic thoughts about Jesus. So Philippians chapter 2, where it says he was in the image of God. Um, and Colossians chapter 1, which is sometimes called the Christ hymn, where it, it talks about um, through um, him all things hold together. Um, those are hymns. And it seems that when people sing about Jesus, rather than just speak about him, somehow the imagination gets lifted. And there's quite a lot of thought that says that John chapter 1 began life as a hymn. And as people sang about Jesus, they began to contemplate more on him. But I, I think in answer to your question, I think John has such a high view of what Jesus is. It's almost as if any time you think a thought about Jesus, you have to go even further to get to the truth. And then when you get to that thought, you have to go even further. And it's almost an infinite series. And also because... For John, this is tied to the idea of authority. We're going to come uh, to this later on uh, when we come to John chapter 3. But the idea that, that Jesus has unique authority to speak to us because he, has, he is the man who has come from heaven. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there is something in the truth of Jesus' voice 
having an authority because he existed with God in the beginning. I mean, it's the immensity of what is said in these first 18 verses. And I suppose when you start at that, and it I feels bad to say rather than starting with a baby in a manger, because the baby in the manger, well, the baby in the manger is only amazing if you if you know this stuff from these first 18 verses, that this is this is the word, this is this is god who's been with god who's created with god who was always with god and and i think when we get to verse 14 um there's a sense that as god becomes flesh and human uh, you know john says we have seen his glory and that's what stuck with me after reading this is that it's in the becoming flesh that the glory of god is seen which mm-hmm. which goes back to what you said neil about John, people say John's a spiritual book, but actually it's in the humanity, the reality, the 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 him being us that we see God. I mean, I mean it's, it is mind blowing. It should be mind blowing, and maybe we don't we don't talk about that mind blowing stuff enough. That this is, and we and we focus on a story of a baby in a manger. But that, as I said, that story is amazing because of who is in that manger, how he's be, how he's come into that manger. It almost to me feels um, it's like a cinematic opening, isn't it? Mm. And and the picture I have in my head is is you know this wide shot of of the universe and starting that from that place, but almost kind of zooming right in to to land in that place of of full of grace and truth. That actually all of all of what the universe contains actually finds a a home within this this fleshly container, isn't it? Yeah, and that's actually a literary phenomenon that existed at this time. I think you know more about these things. So isn't it the case that in Greek theatre that often you would have a, an opening? I, there is a name for a it, prologue. I think. Uh, do you mean a prologue? Or, no. Yeah, is it called a prologue? Well, well Where... I was thinking about prologues. I was thinking, for example, about Romeo and Juliet. Not, not yeah. Greek, but if you look at Shakespeare, in, in Romeo and Juliet, he, he tells you what's going to happen. Uh, you know, he sets you up to, to, for for the rest of the story, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. I don't know if that's where you're going with that. Story. Yeah, no, I think, and it's that device which mm-hmm. gives you the big mm-hmm. picture, and then you then you zoom in. Mm-hmm. The, the and it, it's full of references, and I think this is important. I I once watched a Lars von Trier film uh, called Breaking the Waves, mm. um, which is quite a tough, demanding film. By the way, I wouldn't automatically recommend that it's watched, but a great friend of mine wanted me to go and see it. And there's a bit at the end where I where a character dies and then it cuts up to a bunch of bells ringing in heaven. And I never knew what what that was about until I watched It's a Wonderful Life. And then I realised that that's what's going on here. And what Lars von Trier, who did Breaking the Waves, didn't do is go, oh, by the way, this is a reference to It's a Wonderful Life. He simply expected me as the cinema watcher to do the work of making the connection. Similarly, um, that moment in Toy Story 2, I think it is, where um, a Zorg and Buzz Lightyear are in an elevator together. And I think there's a bit where Zorg says to Buzz Lightyear, oh, I am your father. And yeah, I think that's two, yeah. Is it Toy Story 2? And Arguably the best Toy Story. <laughs> and everybody knows <laughs> that at that point who's watched it knows that's a reference to Star Wars. It's, it's unmistakable. It's not like it's, oh, you're over-reading or you're over-interpreting. It's totally a reference to Star Wars. Now, when John begins his gospel by saying, 
in the beginning was the word, or in Greek, it's NRK, and in RK, it's the same word we get archaeology from. In the beginning, NRK, hologos, which is the word. Everybody knows that he's quoting Genesis chapter 1, which in the Greek version of the Old Testament begins with exactly the same words, um, but it's NRK theos in the, the Greek version. And he's revisiting the story of Genesis. And this tells us something about John. He is expecting us to do some work. He is expecting us to make connections. And this is going to go right through the story. There's a a healing in John chapter 5, where he refers to the man having been there for 38 years. And I think he's re- expecting us to refer to a story in, in the Exodus story. But but John, on one level, is quite simple, but he's also asking us to do work and to notice connections. So when he starts talking about light and darkness in John's prologue, or later on in chapter 1, when he starts talking about a whole series of days, he's asking us to make connections with Genesis. And not just to be clever and literary, but to say the Christ who has come has recreated creation. There is something new that has happened in the very fabric of existence that deserves to be told as a second Genesis story. In fact, deserves to be told as the fulfilment of the Genesis story. It's interesting too, just thinking about that that, that prologue thing, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the role of the device of the prologue. Mm -hmm. Why does an author choose to do that? Why does a playwright choose to do that? Partly it's to alert the audience to their need to think about that story in those terms. Oh, is that right? Does yeah, that, well, yeah. well I, I, I don't know if that's right. That, I, I mean, that makes I'm a just, lot of I'm sense. just thinking about it. Yeah. You know, so, so why does Shakespeare put the prologue into the start of Romeo and Juliet? Well, it's, I think, to make the audience think, oh, maybe we need to think about this kind of story because yeah. maybe it's not just about the Capulets and the Montagues. Yeah. So maybe two houses alike. You, you know, so so it, it almost, it's almost a kind of alienation. I don't know if I can't remember if alienation is the right term I'm looking for, but it's almost to, to make you as a, a viewer or a reader be alert to your reading and your viewing. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? So so I don't just, I don't just consume this, but I, yeah. I, I'm alert to something. Yeah. And, and therefore, I'm, it's to say to the reader, so we, we might come to this later on, that you know when I talk about uh, themes of light and darkness, which exist here, maybe you might want to bear that in mind when I get to chapter nine of my story mm-hmm. and I tell the story of a blind man being mm-hmm. healed and I end that with a, a conversation about light and darkness. You might want to relate that to what's going on in mm-hmm. this bigger theme. Mm-hmm. Or even more so right at the end of John chapter 18, where it talks about, um, or verse 18, where it talks about the son being in the bosom of the father. That's a very unusual Greek word in, in uh, John's gospel, the word bosom, it's Greek word kolpos. Um, when that reappears in John chapter 13, when the beloved disciple leans into the kolpos, the bosom of Jesus, maybe I'm flagging you about some form of intimate relationship that the beloved disciple has with the Christ and that is the same one that the Christ has with God. So there are all the, I mean, there, we'll maybe talk about this in a minute, but there are all these connections between this prologue and what's about to come later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never I've never thought about that before and, and reading it in that way and coming back to the prologue because the, the other bit that, it, it, when you're talking about that, that struck me is the bit about in verse 12 and 13. Mm. You no, know, he gave those those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, and not born of natural descent, uh, but born of God. And then you go on a few chapters, and you've got Nicodemus coming yeah. at mm-hmm. night, and these same words: uh, you, you, "You'll be born of the Spirit, a new birth." And yeah. a, a other thing about 
John, I hadn't noted for how important John the Baptist is in the prologue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has talked about a lot, and I wondered why that was. Yeah, well, well, can we talk about that? Because because I, I was thinking about the fact that I, I've over the years tried to learn this, and and I've done it mm. in church at various points. Um, and and it's you see when you learn it, the first paragraph is really easy. Well, it's not really yeah. easy, but there's a mm. flow to it. And then all of a sudden, you hit this stuff about John the Baptist. There was a man. It's really hard to remember God. it to, yeah, to yeah. recite it. Yeah. What, what what is going on there? Why why does he suddenly? Well, that, because to, to my mind, yeah. as somebody trying to learn the learn the words, it would make sense to do the first section, the cosmic mm-hmm. thing, and then we come down to you know, like I talked about that yeah. that that image mm. of coming to the, the the place of Jesus. But John the Baptist kind of sits abruptly in between, doesn't he? So there's there's a there's a beautiful image, and I actually loved this when I read it because I I know the place really well. well there's a there's a paper on John's prologue that's quite well known that compares it to the a mountain in Switzerland in the just off the Rhone Valley called the Don du Midi, which means the teeth of midday. And uh, I particularly love it because my friend Ivor lives out there. And if anybody has ever been to the home uh, house of Francis Schaeffer, which is a place called Le Brie in Switzerland, it looks directly onto this mountain. And the thing about the Don du Midi is it's three peaks at the summit of the, of the mountain. Uh, Peak one, peak two, and peak three. And the reason that the writer compared the Don du Midi to John's prologue is because he said there were, this commentator was saying that there is the first peak, which is the uh, the section verses one to five, in the beginning was the word, and ends with the light shines in the darkness. Then there's a little dip where you go into the story of John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. Then you come back up again. He was in the world and the world did not receive him all the way to the word became flesh. uh, And from his fullness, we've all received. Then it dips down again. There's a second John the Baptist bit. John cried out about him. And then we peak again uh, for the bit about being in the the bosom of the father. Now, why, why do we insert the dips? Particularly because you can actually, if you were to take the John bits out, it all makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And it will, it, there's quite a lot of speculation that it originally existed as the bit without John. It was like a single peaked mountain instead of the the, the Don du Midi. Why insert the bits about John? I think two reasons. One, I think that John is, John the writer, is saying that you have to interleave the human experience with these divine heights. I'm not going to let you just tell a story in which you float off into the clouds and everything's cosmic and beautiful and Christ-like. You are going to, we are going to integrate this in the world of the flesh because that's what God does. The word becomes flesh. Therefore, the human existence and the spiritual existence, have those two stories have to be told together. The second thing I think is going on, and this you maybe notice this when you memorized it, and I do too, it, I'm trying to find the right word. It becomes less structured as the story goes on. And that's going to be a feature that we that we get with, with John um, in, in a lot of the stories that he tells. He'll start the chapter with quite a simple story and then the, the narrative goes off in all sorts of different directions and it's much harder to pin down. Mm-hmm. And this also happens in, in John's prologue. The end of the prologue is much less tightly pulled together than the start. And I think what John is saying is, as your life in Christ goes on, and as you dwell with this more, it becomes much harder to squeeze it into set patterns. Mm-hmm. And 
and th- and things go off in all sorts of different directions. And I think he's pointing to an aspect of what it is to follow Christ here as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Jen, do you want to talk a little bit about, you, you said in advance that the, the idea of light and life we think of as a spiritual thing. I mean, you've kind of re- referred to this already, mm-hmm. but you felt there was something going on here where it was, it was becoming much more embodied. And you had a lovely phrase around verse 14. Well, I think I said, yeah, did I say that already about um, in the fleshy reality of humanity is the glory. And I just, it's what Neil said, that this, this, this glory of God, this incredible event happening of God becoming one of us is through pregnancy, <laughs> labour, birth, humanity, weakness, fragility, uh, it's in this person of Jesus that we're going to see God. But that's the story. Yeah. That's the story of our faith, isn't it? Um, and also, I don't know if this isn't what you asked me, if you're about, I was just thinking there in verse 15 when it says John testifies. I think that testimony of John about Jesus, um, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. This mm-hmm. is his cousin he's talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. what insight. John must have to know that his cousin who's six months younger than him um, is not just a a man and and that's interesting because well we know this prologue is written looking back obviously but um, did did John know that makes me wonder did John John knew that through his childhood and Uh his youth and his early adulthood before Jesus had started his ministry Mm -hmm. he, he knew that Jesus was he who had been before? That that's I'd never thought about that before. It's really yeah, it's really interesting. So, so the yeah. revelation of glory had been made to him, yeah, in in the fleshly place. Very interesting. Let, let's talk about some of the themes then, because we've alluded to that, that. That will be themes that we'll experience through the the whole book. So I I had written down things like light and life being mentioned, obviously. We've talked about that with this new gospel. That's the heading for that. And each, um, of, those, each of those have a chapter. So, so mm-hmm. life, um, light, a uh, then gets picked up in the story of the blind man in John chapter nine, and life gets picked up in the story of the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter eleven. Mm. And obviously, the other thing to say about that is that is the linking into the I am statements. Yeah, yeah. That we see through John, don't we? So often yeah. these these statements come alongside a, an encounter. Um, I've got, so I've got light, life. I've got witness mm-hmm. is mentioned here. The the world. So. That notion of loving the world. Um, I've got the offspring of God, which again, Jen, you've already talked about there. Uh, glory, grace, truth were things that I I sort of spotted. Yes. So and and all of those come. So so glory will come again in John chapter seventeen, where Jesus talks about uh, the glory that I had with you at the end of the world. Um, there's also a theme of rejection that happens. So he came to his own and mm-hmm. his own did not receive him. Yeah. And there's that poignant a moment in John chapter seven where it said even his own brothers did not believe yeah. in him. So there's a there's a constant theme of rejection. You, I think in just about every chapter, Jesus has an mm-hmm. argument in John's gospel. So the conflict is a, is a theme that we're going to see again and again. There are also stylistic things that we're going to pick up on again. So there's um, the use of what's called an inclusio, where um, the beginning is echoed in the end. So mm. if you see in John chapter one, we begin with the the Christ and the Father together. The Word is with God, and the Word is God. Um, and then we uh, see once again in verse eighteen that they're back together again. 
Um, and this time it's the son who's in the bosom of the father. So there's this thing about the beginning and the ending. There's the use of repetition, which is going to happen a lot in, in the gospel. There's the use of ambiguity. So um, in uh, John chapter 1, as verse 5, it says uh, the word katalambano in Greek, um, the word is either the word did not, uh, the darkness did not understand the light or the, the darkness did not overcome the light. There's a there's a word that can mean two different things and, and John's happy to leave that there. And then there's the, the use of paradox as well. So in verse 13, it says that um, the, we become born not of the flesh. So at that point, think, oh, flesh is a bad thing. And that, and that will be picked up later on in the gospel. But then in verse 14, we have the word becomes flesh. So suddenly there's an there's an endorsement of what it is to be fleshy. And there's there's quite a strong view that one of the things that's going on in John's prologue in particular, which may have been written after the gospel, is that there was a view around which said Jesus had not come in the flesh. Jesus was simply an appearance of God. There's an interesting um, verse in uh, one of the John's uh, Gospels. It's in Second uh, John 1 verse 7, where it says, number of deceivers have gone out into the world and they do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh. And what John is wanting to say here in his prologue and in his gospel is, oh, no, no, the word became flesh. Flesh is, mm-hmm. is not something to be hated. Flesh is, is a thing that can be inhabited by God. Um, so there's a possibility that what's going on here with that use of flesh and that paradox is that John's taking on some of the, his opponents who are around him in the community. Okay, so we're, we're going to kind of round things off. Unless, unless people have got anything else they want to say, and then, but, the, but before we finish, I want to ask about Brian Cox. But before we do that, <laughs> yeah, is just, there anything else anybody wants to, to add? Just to say in? as well that, a, that it's what I've actually just been alluding to. This is one of the tensions we're going to see in John's Gospel is flesh and glory. And yeah. commentators argue hugely about verse 14 the word became flesh and we have seen his glory and which one of those two parts of that verse do you emphasize do you emphasize the glory part and famously there was a, a german biblical scholar called ernst kaseman which uh, also is very fancy yes it means cheeseman that's exactly what it means yeah so we go kaseman basically just means cheesy ernst um, <laughs> um but he said this was God striding the earth. It's this kind of imperial view of God. And when Rudolf Bultmann came along, famous interpreter of John, and he said, oh, no, 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 it's the flesh. It's in the flesh that we see Christ. And that tension, I think, is that paradox is set up in the whole of the gospel, and I would argue in the whole of our lives. That's a big, big theme that we're going to see. The paradox is at the heart of our faith. I mean, mm. you could use the word contradiction as well. And often people say, I've been asked often, you know, do you think the Bible contradicts itself? It's like as if trying to catch you out, you know. And like, yeah, it does. Because, and it's b- because of this that, you know, our faith is a paradox. In in the death of Jesus is life. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, in, in God becoming human is glory. You know, and, mm-hmm. and there's so many other examples. So I, I always find that question slightly irritating that, is is does the Bible contradict itself? Yeah, our faith our faith is a paradox. It's full of contradictions. I did suggest at the beginning before we started recording that we could probably spend the whole year just talking about verse fourteen. I'd yes. be happy to do that. <laughs> Rudolf Bultmann did. Well, me and Rudolf, we could have had a lovely Rudolf and I. I get really annoyed when people say me and Rudolf and I would have had a fascinating conversation. And um, so, just to round things off, 
Neil, Brian Cox. Yeah, well, I think you and I are both on a rant about this. I think we're we? of the same mind. <laughs> so I was, I was told, as someone I'd spoken to got very upset by John, by Brian Cox's The Universe Programme. And I th- initially when I, th- I thought that, I thought this person was maybe just going down the usual faith and science thing. And um, the, the, I don't know, they were just getting annoyed at science. And I thought, uh-huh. oh, it can't be that bad. Uh-huh. And then I watched it. And it's a stunning program. It starts off oh, it's fantastically. Visually uh, gorgeous. Oh, it's immense. And I musically love... gorgeous. I mean, yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. I mean, they mm-hmm. are works of art. Mm-hmm. And it's the first program is all about stars. I haven't seen. I have to say, I haven't seen the others yet. But it's all about stars. But Brian Cox's thing is, and he uses this language. He says the stars crafted life. The stars made life. You know, it's very similar to John chapter one. Mm-hmm. Well, he then, does use sort of biblical language, actually, doesn't yes, he? Yes, he? I does. can't remember because it's it's been about a month since well, I've watched calls it. Calls them gods. I mean, yes, that's, that's... but he but he also he 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 kind of pulls sentences that yes. sound like verses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's he's drawing on anyway. Sorry, no, no, I'm no, I totally agree. So I'm he's subtracting. <laughs> and and but it's all but it's all lovely Brian Cox, you know, it's very, very gentle and all the rest. Uh-huh. So we're uh-huh. and then without telling us at any point he has moved from science to philosophy, um, but with the same certain tone of voice that he used to describe dark matter and the life of red dwarfs, he then says, Well, we no longer need um gods anymore because the sons have done all the work that we thought mm-hmm. gods did so therefore he's he's saying you know the sun made life and the sun created the conditions for life and he says you don't need gods anymore and i i I got really annoyed because i thought there was such a lack of humility in that sentence there wasn't a preparedness to say for me for example yes or and and a total dismissal of centuries and millennia of thought yeah yeah actually (laughs) And, and, but it was lovely Brian Cox, so we let away with it because uh-huh. he's uh-huh. all very gentle and thoughtful and mm-hmm. humble. Um, but and I, I mean, and I'm so upset because I lo- I love the program, but but I got so annoyed partly because I wanted to say, well, Brian, that's great, but who made the stars mm-hmm. and who created the the laws of physics that allowed these stars and and we know that there are huge improbabilities and all those laws coming together. So. Let's talk about that question rather than just sweep it under the carpet. And at, at the point, at that point, I was wanting to use an image that the Celts used for Christ, which was they called Christ the sun behind the sun, which I, mm. I love that image of, of the Christ behind the sun. Mm-hmm. So who you, you haven't answered the whole question. But the second thing I got really annoyed about was because it was implying that the only thing we thought God did, I mean, the only thing is still huge, was made a world, in effect, to do the work of verses probably one to four of the prologue here. And I wanted to say, but Brian, we also believe in a God who did verses four to 18, mm-hmm. who came amongst us, mm-hmm. who taught us how to love, who filled us with grace and truth. There's no star that ever did that. Mm-hmm. So don't call, call that star God. Because the God I believe in comes in Christ and welcomes us in and pulls us into intimate relationship. I don't have an intimate relationship with Alphas and Turi. I don't have an intimate relationship with the, the stars of Orion, much as I love them. But I do have an intimate relationship with with the God who's described here. Um, so that was my reaction to the universe. It sounds like quite similar to yours, actually. Oh, it's entirely. I, I, I find I, I, I could only... Yeah, I couldn't really watch all the way through the first mm-hmm. program. But that kind of that thinking permeate from Brian Cox permeates into 
common culture. Yeah. Mm. So but I've been watching something very different about space called Lost in Space, the Netflix series uh, of family lost in space, as they would be, going by the title. But there was a wee moment in it when this uh, man and this woman that he'd found uh, were wandering about this planet that they didn't know where they were. And um, she's wearing a St. Christopher medal. And he turns to her and says, you've got a PhD. You won't believe all that nonsense that's around your neck. But it's, it's the same kind of non-nuanced mm-hmm. thinking, isn't it? Yeah. That, that you you've thought everything, you've 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 developed your brain, you're a scientist, so then you're not going to have any connection with what that medal represents. Yeah, and I, I I get so that I get so annoyed as well because I, if you went to Brian Cox and said, "Show me the scientific paper that shows that a red dwarf star has a certain lifetime," he'd be able to point you to it. Yeah, show me the the paper that that begins to probe at the mystery of dark matter. He'd be able to show me the maths. Show me the scientific paper that says we don't need God anymore because we've now got the stars. It doesn't exist. So you claim the scientific methodology, but at that point you jumped off and went by faith. Now, I understand why you made that point, but don't say that what you did was on the same intellectual footing yeah. as all the other stuff that you said in the rest yeah. of the program. Yeah, I think that was what most got to me, actually, to be honest. Yeah. It was the evangelistic tone, but it was also, yeah, it was it was the lack of rigour yeah. in that yeah. jump that yeah. had been made. Anyhow, if you're an astronomer or a theologian or general expert on space matters, get in touch with us, outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org. Org. Uh, good. We're going to draw things to a close there uh, before we have a gem. Um, but any takeaways from our prologue today? I think that that point Neil was just describing there of of seeing seeing the rest of the story of John in the light of the prologue. I'm I'm looking forward to doing that and seeing the connections of that this big overview in the detail. I think for me, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with the two of you, and it's good to be back in John. And I'm really looking forward to the next 20 weeks. Brilliant. And mine's the same, mine's the same as Jen's, actually. I, I feel quite uh, stimulated to go and look for all those little things that we found in the pro- prologue yeah. as we read through. So that's going to be great. Jen, what's your gem today? One of my Christmas presents was a Kindle. Now, I've used Kindle on my phone, but that was never as good. Uh, but I got a proper Kindle device and I've oh, I've just been, I love a real book and the turn of the page and the smell of the paper and all that stuff. But having a Kindle means you can read it anywhere, even when it's dark. So that's nice in bed if you've got someone else in bed who doesn't want the light on. And it's also good if they're going to want the Christmas tree lights on. That was nice. I could read. So my Kindle, has, and it just gives me access to so many books that I might think, oh, I can't pay all that money to buy that book. Um, sometimes they're cheaper on Kindle. So I've been doing quite a lot of reading, which has been great. And one of the books I read was called Unpacking Scripture in Youth Ministry by, you won't be surprised, uh, Andy Root, because I've recommended his books quite a lot. And it's a series of little books he did around about 2013. Uh, There's three other in the series, um, Theological Journeys Through Youth Ministry. I won't give you all the titles. You can look them up. Uh, So they're they're quite short. Um, I read it in an afternoon. So you know, a couple of days, it, it is a wee dip in. And what Andy Root is very good at, which kind of ties in with First John, is taking theology and putting it into practice. So he's got lots of theological stuff about how we read the Bible with young people, but he has a imaginary youth worker who whose story is unfolding as you go through the book. And she's having a bit of a battle 
um, with her church leadership because they don't think she's got the right opinion of the Bible. And he takes that argument and he develops really to, to try and ask answer the question, what is the Bible and why are we using it with young people? So I'd really recommend the book. I was going to read a wee quote, um, maybe a couple of quotes. Here's a wee quote. Um, so what is the Bible? And there's that temptation in youth ministry and in church that's all about giving information, having good biblical knowledge. Uh, and he just says this, which is really well put. The Bible witnesses, and, and that ties into the first John, that John is a witness to the word, but mm. also the Bible that we have, that we've been gifted is a witness uh, to the God we know through Jesus. The Bible witnesses to the action of God in Jesus, calling us to seek this God who brings life out of death and proclaim this love that breaks open an altogether new reality. Youth ministry invites young people to pick up the Bible, not as a tool of religious socialization or moral maintenance, but as a tool for interpreting who God is and how God is moving in their worlds, sweeping their very lives up into the new reality of God's action. And I just, I think that quote says it all. Give it a read. Very practical, practical ideas, but also deep theology in a very accessible way. Thank you very much, Jen. That's great. Thank you. I feel like you should be sponsored. Your section should be sponsored by Kindle. By Andy Root. <laughs> or, or, Andy or Andy Root. Root. Yes. <laughs> Andy Root. I maybe send him a message. Exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you know him? I, I don't know him, no. I was once on a boot. I was love, one of the amazing thing about um, about lockdown and having to do things on Zoom, I once joined in joined a book group that Susie Farrant, who's the youth ministry person for Church of Scotland, had organised. And we were talking about one of Andy's books and she was able to invite him along. I mean, he lives in the States, but you couldn't have done that pre-lockdown. You'll have a book group and invite the author. And he came and joined in and it was just great to ask him questions and hear his insights of why he'd written the book that we were talking about. In my head, I always get mixed up with Andy Crouch. I love Andy Crouch. (laughs) I'd like to be in a in a book group with Andy Crouch. <laughs> Great. Who's Andy Crouch again? <laughs> he writes on culture. So he used to work for Christianity Today, I think. But um, he, the big book that I love is Culture Making. Um, but he's done some stuff on digital uh, engagement for families and that kind of thing as well. I would recommend that. Andy Root also loves dogs and wrote a book called The Theology of Dogs. Uh, Andy Crouch plays the piano. <laughs> could, we, could we get Andy Crouch and Andy Root both on the podcast one day? I yeah. doubt it. I think we might get Andy Root. We could try. Okay, I don't think I could get Andy Crouch. I just like his books. <laughs> I think I think we've got enough pool. I think we yeah. should be able to do it. Maybe. I mean, maybe. Who knows? Like you say, in this era of uh, Zoom yeah. stuff. It was maybe. more successful than my attempt once to get John Bell and Rob Bell together. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to remember who it was. I was like, it's two people with the same name. Oh, it was a surname. <laughs> anyway, let's draw things to a close. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. We look forward to lots of stimulating conversation around the themes that we've identified, but particularly perhaps light and life this year. Don't forget, again, banging on about it. If you've got any questions, any comments, if you're an astronomer, then uh, reach out to <laughs> us uh, through the email address outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org. Um, but until the next time, goodbye. Goodbye.